Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. The very best of last week's rugby coaching webinars and podcasts, reviewed by host Phil Flewellyn and his special guests. Welcome to the Rugby Coach Weekly Roundup Rodeo. I'm your host, Phil Llewellyn. Thank you for joining us for season two as we continue to delve into the world of sports coaching. My guests will be presenting their key learnings from a piece of content of their choosing, and we then discuss its application. As always, I'm delighted to have three fantastic individuals join me this week. So, gents, if you'd like to introduce yourselves and tell us your current role. Uh, hey guys, so uh, my name's Ian Johns and um, I'm the Paralympic head coach for judo, for GB judo at the minute. Um, been, in, uh, been in power, shall we say, since about 2014 um, and just coming up to my second Paralympic Games as the head coach of the GB team. Hi, uh, my name's Tristan McLaughlin. I'm a rowing coach uh, in the school and I'm also studying a PhD in elite, well, um, athlete welfare and elite sport. Uh, hi, I'm Peter Prickett. I currently work with Brentford FC Community Trust, football coaching and do some work with other sports. Recently finished a Masters in Performance Football Coaching, um, former FA tutor and written a couple of books about small-sided games coaching. Uh, really excited to get all three of you on and definitely get outside of, of my kind of rugby bubble. So uh, keen to hear about your, not only your thoughts on your content, but also definitely how that applies in the, the variety of worlds in which you're coaching. So uh, yeah, really excited for this one. And thank you very much for being on. Uh, before we get started, just a reminder for anyone listening to check out the blurb for links to all the content we discuss and recommendations to other high quality podcasts and content. So we will get stuck into things straight away. Ian, we are coming to you. What is it that you're going to be talking to us about? Um, so today, I mean, can I just say how difficult it was? I mean, I've been thinking about it all day about what I could, what books, what pieces of information I can draw from this. And um, I've ever since I left school, I never wanted to read at school, but ever since I've become a coach, I've non-stop read and listened to audio books and stuff like that. But I'm going to go with uh, something that has had a massive impact on me. And that's Nigel Risner's um, The Impact Code. And especially one chapter of The Impact Code as well. So um, probably the backstory is that um, as a coach, um, I am fully in like I, I get obsessed with with coaching. I get obsessed with my team. I get obsessed with um, judo and, and, and stuff like that. I'm obsessed with learning. So I'm, I'm fully in. And um, yeah, I, t I just spend all my time just thinking about judo, especially in the lead into Paralympic Games in Rio. Um, I couldn't stop thinking about what the, what the team needed or, um, you know, I need to have this meeting with this member of staff. I need to... I need to speak to nutrition about it. I need to do proper use to get lost in time. Um, and so I would spend a lot of time thinking about one thing, thinking about another thing, um, going, going to one meeting, but actually thinking about another meeting and going, getting on technical sessions, but thinking, oh, no, I need to speak to the classification guys. I need to, there's a whole host of stuff that I was getting into. 
and I was on a course, a UK sport course, and on that course was uh, Peter Moores, the ex-cricket uh, um, uh, uh, gaffer, and he was talking about some very similar things. And I remember I was I was on my phone while he was talking, and I was on my phone. I was one of my athletes was injured, and I was thinking, oh, I need to speak to the physio about this. And, and then he started speaking about being in the room and how he'd listened to how he'd listened to this kind of um, he'd spoken to Nigel Rizno. Somebody had, had got him in contact with him, and all of a sudden, I found myself being in the room. I was I listened to the conversation. I couldn't. I was proper. I couldn't get out of the conversation. Um, and and a lot of the things that he was talking about, I could really it really resonated with me. So, I, I, for example, I come home. Um, as I, we're we're based at the Centre of Excellence in Walsall, and um, so I go on a Monday, and I stay there all week, and then I come home on a Friday, and I end up speaking to my wife and my kids about what the guys are doing. And <laughs> like I'm not obsessed with it. I said, "Oh yeah, should have seen Skelly in the gym today. Pushed a PB, and uh, and and this throw." My kids don't care about that. <laughs> so, so yeah. So I mean, the the book itself or the, or the chapter of being in the room, um, but the, the 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 impact code has different um, different types. So I is in the room. M is uh, model from the best. P is passion and purpose. A is actions. Um, when more stuff is done than than, than said. Um, C comic relief. Um, so having a bit of fun really. And, and the T is trust. But in the room is the bit that really gets me because I find myself being, if, if you put it into context there, that you're in the room, you're in a meeting, but you've got loads of windows around you and you're looking out of those windows to make sure that the S&C coach knows what they're doing, to know what the, the athletes are doing over that side and to know, um, you know, just all the other stuff that goes along with coaching. Um, and, and, and Peter was talking about the best coaching he ever did was when he forgot about his family, he forgot about the S&C coach, he forgot about the problems he was having with Kevin Peterson, and he just spoke about just bowling, and it was the best session he ever, he ever took. And, um, yeah, so, so I think for me that chapter is where, where I've started. I took a load of learning from that, and... Um, essentially at the minute I, I i try to um yeah i try to be in the room as best i can so it takes a heck of a lot of planning it takes a lot a lot of organization so um like it takes me three hours to get from warsaw to my home in scunthorpe in that time i tend to listen to audio books i tend to listen to uh podcasts um radio x now and again if i need a, if i need a good laugh but um yeah, so, but in that time, I also do my planning. So then I can do my final conversations before I come through the door at home and I can just be at home then and not worry about, I'm still available. Like, so the team, like they still know if they could, if they want to get in contact with me, they can do, but I tend to just be at home. And this is my time now to be, to be the best husband ever or the best father ever, you know. Um, and then when I go to work, that's it. I'm at work. I'm in, I'm in that room. Um, so it takes a lot of a lot of organization the ability to be honest with people as well and just said you know I can't focus on that today I can't focus on that in this meeting or you know I'm taking a technical session today 
and it is literally just about this technical session today. I'm not that bothered about what the SNC coach has to say, or the psych, or, or even my gaffer sometimes as well. And now I need to really focus on on this in this specific moment in time. Um, it, I have to be able to turn my phone off or turn my phone over in meetings, so I can't hear and get distracted by other people, um, which is really difficult to do when you when you when you're running a, a, a when you're part of a successful program or or tr trying to do the best you can do, just turning your phone over and not listening to people, um, I found one of the toughest things to do. And then just trusting that people will still be there at the end of a meeting or the end of a technical session or uh, at the end of a weekend, you know, so when the guys contact me on a Saturday or Sunday, um, just knowing that. And then, um, yeah, the, I think the book helped me to just get my focus, um, get, get it, so it focuses my attention more than anything, <laughs> like, you know, that I don't have to, um, with some other learning that I've been doing, so I don't have to do everything all at one time. I could just really focus my attention just on that one part there. So, yeah, in the room, I, I try my best to be in the room when I can be. Um, like, I've turned my phone over now, so I can't, can't even look at it now. So I'm just in the, in the room with you guys. That's brilliant. I love that. I think that's probably something we all all face in any walk of life, whether it's you know coaching or, or anything else. So um, interesting. So you mentioned a couple of things there about obviously your strategy in the car, and then you're turning your phone over, and then honesty and with conversations, and then the kind of trust. Have you got any? I guess maybe kind of more mental triggers. So if my thought of being in the room, I would definitely struggle with if it doesn't necessarily engage me. I'd start drifting and thinking of other things or the opposite. If it's really engaged me, I'll definitely start going. That's a brilliant idea. How would I start applying that or, or what, you know, imagining something else. So have you outside of, I guess, the physical stuff, have you kind of gone with any mental strategies of, of how you would engage staying in the room? Probably, probably not really. Um, well, not that I know of. Um, but what, what I tend to do is make sure that each, each thing I do has a purpose. So if I'm taking a technical session, the purpose of this technical session is this. The outcome of the session will be this. Um, same with the meet. It's the meetings that I struggle with. So if when we're having a team meeting or we're having um, a multi-team multi, multi -team meeting especially, it's, if it's got a purpose, then, then it's no problem. I, can, I, can, I also struggle with that. I'll be thinking, oh, I need to get this sorted. I need to get that sorted. Um, but yeah. In the car is the best example of when I do it because as I'm as I'm driving down uh, the A38, I'm thinking about this. As I get to the M18, just up the road here, I'm thinking about this, and then I think I need to wrap it up now. <laughs> so, in the centre of excellence, I think it's a bit different because you're there all day. I mean, lockdown has helped massively our centre because we're not just hanging about. Um, we've been given permission to go back training. And we're only in there for two hours, three hours. So we have to be very succinct in what we're doing. So I don't get the chance to not be in the room, if that makes sense. Um, as soon as I've done my two, three hours, we get out of there and then I have to go to accommodation. Then I can open it up a little bit. Uh, Ian, if I could just ask you a question. Uh, I've been quite fortunate to coach in rowing across um, quite a few different levels. What I experienced, the higher I got in terms of performance, the more there was to do and then suddenly it would seem that the sessions would creep up on me or because you're doing lots of other stuff and organizing lots of other stuff did you find that that's the case in your role now and that when you were doing different roles prior to this one 
do you have or do you feel you have the same problem um i think i probably had a very similar problem because i tried to do everything um i soon realized that i can't do everything do do what i i think as most coaches i definitely have the recipe for success i believe i know what it takes to to become a champion um i also believe i also know from experience what it takes to not become an olympian or not get to the very top so i did everything i could to be the very best and didn't quite get there so i have this very clear vision on what it is to look like so when i first started my role a i wanted to show people how good i was um and b i had this very uh distinct like this is what it needs to what it needs to be and so i tried to do everything um i realized at the paralympic games when i was stood there and we got three fifth places three bronze medal matches i thought i'm shattered i'm absolutely broken in half from this and i can't do another cycle like that so when i came back to the uk and we started planning what the next cycle needs to look like it was like okay i need you to help me with this i need you to help me with this and so because of that now i don't do everything um i, I tend to um i've passed a little bit of this on to the athletes as well to our fighters and just said you know you need to take ownership of this part you need to take ownership of this part so i can do the over it gives me the opportunity to zoom out as an eagle and just look back down on what is going on in it i think the problem i had when i first started the job in 2014 was that um the qualification period for the games had started so i was in the trenches like i was like you know i had to get them fighting winning and, and get into the games so yeah. I, I think that answers but sure. yeah yeah thank you interesting point so in terms of now flipping it from coaches to, to the athletes we work with an open question to all of you how how would you go about recognizing this type of stuff or, or actually engaging our athletes to to be more again in the room in the session kind of whatever the environment is because I mean I can definitely think of examples off the top of my head where I'm I'm looking at a player and I'm going how how engaged in this are you as is that then down to me talking too much or they're just not interested or for whatever reason would would you guys have strategies for noticing that type of thing and and is that something you would engage in conversation around with with the people you work with so i i coach um junior athletes uh and what i find is that they uh in their rowing group will while they're with us historically they would then message their friendship group and then when they're with their friendship group they'll message their rowing group and they live in this perpetual idea of missing out on something and and actually what i've tried to address with that is just um what ian said was really resonated is about just being present with the people that you're with um and and otherwise you might miss it uh, and instead of worrying about missing something that you might not know is happening, you might miss something that's right in front of you. Um, and so we've worked quite hard on, we don't have any rules, but we've worked quite hard on just being present with the people that you're around and you'll get a lot more out of the uh, experience as a result. Peter, any thoughts here? How would how you go about working with, with the, the, the players that you deal with? Well, I was just trying to think, I mean, because I've worked with many, many different groups, varying ages and um, the thing that struck me I was just thinking about the younger the, the eight and nine year olds and often I oh, certainly in the last year or two 
I found the issue is from being, and this might sound a bit daft, too engaged, overly engaged, and therefore overly excited. So the problem isn't getting them in the room. I, they're in the room as they're through the gate. They're, they're sprinting. They are a million miles an hour. And actually, they're so up for it that we've got to hold them back a little bit and we've got to be really careful then not to hold them back so much that they then lose that enthusiasm. So it's, it's a, a bit of a, a different dynamic. And of course, that changes with different age groups. Older, older children, teenagers, we have different problems. We do then need to get them tuned into the task and recognising it, watch the body language, are there conversations going off at times when there shouldn't be conversations really happening? Is that because of the task? We might need to change that and so on. And like changing tasks and challenges would probably be the, the most obvious and logical way of, of addressing someone being possibly absent or occupied with, with other thoughts at that time. Yeah, nice. I, I guess context is huge with everything, isn't it? I would talk about that a lot. But actually, yeah, just just that flip of maybe sometimes we've got to recognise, as you say, too too invested and and then deal with that challenge as well. So, Ian, I'll come yeah. back to you. Is have, have you progressed your thinking across the athletes? Is that something you've done sessions on? Yeah. So so essentially, I mean, practicing what I preach, and like you know, I read the book, I, I listened to it, I, I read it, reread it again. And very rarely have I reread it, and that is for sure. I don't, uh, I don't tend to usually reread it, but I reread it and thought, yeah, this this bit really is good. And so, I mean, our the, the athletes that I work with um, are visually impaired, so they've got that going on in their lives. Um, they're trying to qualify for a Paralympic Games. They've got that going on in their lives. Some of them have wives and girlfriends. Um, some of them have got kids. Like they've got other stuff going on as well. So. Um, so the conversations I've had with my guys usually tend to be um, a, about being in the room, you know. So when you come to judo and you've got a, a randori or a sparring session, as we call it randori, then you the, then to save injury, to save mental capacity, all that kind of stuff that the guys have to go through, then they, they tend to get in the room. And you know what? They took it on board really well. Like, you know, mo most of them have taken it on board. So they're, they're in the gym, they're in the gym. That's it. They're, they don't worry about everything else that they've got to do. If they're at home, they worry about being at home. Um, I think, especially for the guys that are, so we've got probably three guys that are in the top five in the world in their respective weights. So they have to be very careful with their time. They have to be very careful with their thoughts and, and stuff like that. So otherwise they can just start thinking about the games all the time and thinking about what, what they're going to do rather than what they need to do right now. So, and that's what we spoke. We, we've spoken about that quite a lot. Um, yeah. But I think my guys are a little bit older on the whole. Is there um, any sort of trigger when they arrive that puts them into the room or anything like that? I was, I've read, um, I'm not going to recommend this as part of the material later on, but uh, it comes, it's going to come up. I read um, Sacred Hoops by Phil Jackson, and 
he recites a story of a coach he worked with where at the start of the session, they would stand on the line and essentially recite an oath, pledging themselves to, to practice. I mean, I'm not suggesting anyone does that, but that was their trigger to get them in the room. I don't know, do you have yeah. any triggers? So, so um, judo is one of those sports where um, we bow on at the beginning. So it's like a, like a Japanese tradition, it's a Japanese sport. Um, so we have, we, like we, we do have to bow on at the minute, and that is usually the trigger for when you're in the dojo, or you know when we go to a competition or anything. The guys usually bow on. That's usually their trigger, um, I suppose. In the gym, we don't bow in the gym. We don't do any oaths or anything like that. So the gym's an interesting one, isn't it? Just when you mentioned that, I, I straight away jumped to some of the teams I've worked with and thinking of their behaviours in the gym, and and there would be, you know, me when I was trying to be an athlete at the time and and certainly since having learned that I'm, I'm looking at my stopwatch going I've got two minutes rest I need to be back ready on that bench or squat rack or whatever to start at you know 158 and then I'm watching all these other people and then they're taking three or four or five minutes because they're having a little chat and and you're just going what kind of performance behaviors are are we actually talking about how in the room are you are you using the gym as a social space or are you using it as a performance space? And yeah, I, I immediately when you started talking at the beginning, my mind was thinking this is this is a training thing on the field. But I, I actually, on in hindsight, it's it's definitely yeah. everywhere, isn't it? I think I think like um, Nigel says in his book about the fun aspect of things as well. So if it's just too serious, even athletes at the, the very top end are not always serious, um, you know. So um, yeah, I think I think. What, what our guys are very good at is, right, we're on, <clears throat> let's go. Like, um, so they get laid on the bench, they push, they push away, get back off the bench, and then they they can relax again. Or they know to push the next person. or the next, they're, they're quite good at that because um, like, it's an individual sport, but within a team setting, um, essentially. So, yeah, I think our guys are reasonably decent at that. I it's interesting at what stage you learn that, isn't it? I think that's, you'd hope by the time they're, they're getting to Olympic level that they're going to understand what the outcomes of doing or not doing those behaviours are going to be. But actually, I, I wonder at what stage you come further down the pyramid, how how explicit we as coaches need to be around those types of things and enforcing that, or does then it become the, the you know, inverted commas, the culture that you have are other people just being quite accepting of that or, or are they pulling other people up on their standards and yeah. And those types of things. So I, I guess that's where it becomes it's probably the nature of the beast as well. Like in judo, especially like it's very disciplined sport. It's very, um, yeah. Like I said, there's lots of tradition attached to the sport itself. Um, it's quite interesting because like we, we tend to send kids in this country to a martial art or something like that for discipline. Um, when you go over to Japan, like all the kids just do it and it's like I've been on some kid sessions and it's just an absolute rabble and you think what on earth is all this about I, I didn't expect this like you know because it's, it's supposed to be for discipline but as they progress as they get older it becomes more and more and more discipline and then it becomes about um, performance then once you get to a certain age um, whereas I think we've got it a little bit different in this country that we we tend to look at these kids and we don't um, we, we think about performance quite early on because this kid could go to the Olympics or this kid could be a professional rugby or football player or 
or, or something like that. So whereas I seem to get the in, impression in Japan that they almost say, okay, you can be a kid. At this age, you could be a kid. And then you get to this age, you're no longer a kid. Like you, you've got to perform now, off you go. So, yeah. No, I think that's brilliant. Yeah, there's loads more I'm sure we could uh, we could get into, but I'm, I'm already conscious of time. So uh, Tristan, we will come to you. What is it that you're going to be talking to us about? Uh, uh, today, I'm going to talk about the Netflix film, Athlete A. It's about uh, the USA gymnastics response to a whistleblower. Um, so uh, Dr. Larry Nassar, who was the team doctor for USA Gymnastics, uh, an athlete happened to be overheard talking about some inappropriate touching as part of her rehab. Um, and she was overheard by her coach. And then her coach told her line manager within USAG. And then she handed it up to the president, Steve Penny. And they then decided to not really do an awful lot. And they... Um, uh, they made it so that uh, they would have a HR expert come in for five weeks and overlook their system. And then finally, they decided that they would contact the FBI. Uh, the FBI then arrested him 13 months later. Uh, so it's, it's a, there's many things that you can take out of the documentary. Athlete A is about um, an Olympic potential athlete called Maggie Nichols, who was 17 at the time. And she was, she put in her complaint uh, just prior to trying to get into the Olympic team. And the, the story sort of follows her story and then evolves into the role of the coaches. Uh, Nassar, by a lot of the athletes, the gymnast was seen as, as quite a good man and on their side. Um, but this was historical as a 2000 um, Olympian Jamie Dancher who talks about um, they saw NASA as the good guy and the only guy that sort of had their back and and looked out for them uh, and the only good adult uh, so I think when we look at these gymnasts uh, I, I work in a late development sport um, whereas gymnastics is very early specialization and and they're very young and I, I don't know that if we acknowledge that until you start to look at their ages when this abuse is taking place. So there's lots to be able to unpick from that. Um, but it's essentially the role of a coach when things are perhaps not going according to plan and how you deal with that. And and I think the offshot of the the, the documentary uh, and the NASA thing is that we've seen huge and systematic uh unveiling of our of our elite sports in this country um not all elite sports but some uh in the pursuit of medals and i think that we're just starting to unpick um what behavior is acceptable and what what are we trying to do as coaches for our athletes or is it that we do it for us and our our own thing and i think that comes out quite clearly in in the in the film is this is this is probably far too big a question for you to answer just by yourself but how or why do you think we've got to a stage where this is now the case across probably far more elite sports than anyone maybe realized or anyone was willing to realize that might be a better way to put it it are uh, are we to blame as the consumer and don't get me wrong i'm not i'm not 
defending any sort of abuse in, in any way, but it, does our desire for our elite performance teams, especially around Olympic type sports to be successful and that hunger from the general public drive a system where British cycling, drugs, all those types of stuff where this then becomes accepted practice or is it the other way in that the, their own individual desire, um, personal, you know, personal, personal, egotistical, whatever it is, was going to happen, whether the, the public were interested in the outcome or not? Do we, is it a combination of all of them? What, what are the general thoughts? I think that there's a combination. That's a big question. Uh, I think there's a combination. Firstly, I, I think that there's been um, people need to engage a bit more that what we're watching when we watch elite sports yes we're paying to watch it and we watch it sat on our sofa and, and tv or we go to the live but it's real they're real people doing real things and it's not a show it's not they're not playing a role there is there is repercussion to what's happening and i think that we we don't quite the higher the level the more there is associated with the success i think we're not very good and by we i don't mean everyone i just mean a generalist thing of we're not very good at taking into the safeguarding because it's, you know, they're getting paid and it's worth it because it's high performance or, and actually it's not, none of it's worth it if, if we're putting player, people out to get injured or, or what was happening with the abuse. And, and uh, the Senator from uh, Blumenthal from America said that um, what had happened with Larry Nassar was that, um, USAG and the people who ran it prioritised money and medals over the young girls who were sexually abused by NASA and that's an extreme of what we're seeing but we are seeing um, sort of abusive behaviour being accepted because it provides results and then there are some papers as well um, that and and some of the reviews that talk about a lack of oversight in line with an increase in medals so actually you 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 get less uh, attention to your behaviors if you if you're successful i i believe that will change but i don't know that it's changing for any other reason than pressure and things like this this um documentary and the the massive media uh, interest and public interest now in how we treat our elite athletes I, th I think that's a great point. Yeah, I think you've answered a big question fantastically well for, for a start, but also just, I love the point. It's not a show that they are real people. And uh, that, that again, just makes me think of, of me sat watching that. All right. I've got an, an interest in sport more generally than, than, you know, most of the general public, but they'll just tune in for the end product and, and the levels of, I want to say secrecy, but I guess elite sport, everyone engages with it. I think because, there is something quite secretive about it. You, you don't get to find out what happens behind the scenes very often, hence the, um, you know, the, the, the documentaries, Living with the Lions, all those types of things um, that actually then show what happens. That's what I think that's why everybody absolutely laps them up because we love peeking behind the curse and we get part of that experience. But does, does the nature of how elite organizations operate in terms of they're not inviting people in you know to share all the information completely understandably but does that actually then create an environment where you can just you're more likely to get away with this stuff um i, th I think um i don't know that abusive behavior 
is uh, is just done by bad people. I think pressure, and uh, I'm sure the other two, Peter and Ian, will be able to talk about this in in a performance setting. But pressure does a lot to people. Um, expectation of behaviours, acceptable behaviours. I think good people can um, change slightly over time about what they perceive as right. I don't. I largely don't believe that there are evil people doing evil things. I think that the the, the behaviour that's accepted sort of reduces, reduces, reduces. And we also live in a world of um, grey area, a fine line. And I think a lot of people want to believe that they are the right side of an ethical line or a doping line or a, an abusive line. But actually, if you are sort of judge and jury on that, it's really difficult to, we're all going to believe that we're all good people. And actually, sometimes there needs to be a bit of independence about that decision making or the people that are ultimately held responsible for the welfare of the athletes, that they hold a very clear line. and and. And it's not about, okay, but we could do this. If I give an example, I imagine if we all watched um, the Lions uh, against South Africa and one of the key players looks like they might have a concussion and HIA, all of us would sit there and, you know, okay, well, I hope, I hope they pass that and come back on and we can play and we might be able to win. We all get sucked into it. But actually in the cold light of day, it's easier to be very clear on, on, on our value system and it's about taking that value system in when there is perceived pressure or or we're doing what we've been told to do or we believe what we need to do to fit in with this group to do to do well um, and as soon as we don't put athletes at the center of every decision we make it's very easy to then to then fall into a into an abusive or toxic culture that is not going to benefit them is there a general point that sport is seen to be different to the rest of life. Things that are not acceptable in normal life are acceptable in sport for some reason. I so, think we also promote that as well. I think that we use terms as coaches, um, you know, focus, single-mindedness. Well, actually, in the wider scheme of things in society, being selfish isn't very helpful. Um, but we frame it in a different context because actually that's what we 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 see that is needed for performance and and it is there's there's evidence to show that but I do think that we frame it in a different way and my master's dissertation was on athletes who'd rode at the Olympics and how they then transitioned to their next part of their career and um, some of what I received as feedback was they struggle with the fact that most of society is pretty relaxed about their you know we'll do the job and we'll do okay and off we go and and it's trying to explain that the extremes of elite sport you are elite because you are not normal but not not like abnormal just you are the best of the best and and some of the behaviors that are tolerated for you to get to that level and stay there are not really going to be tolerated in a normal job um so yeah i think there is a certain thing about um, behaviors in sport we deem acceptable but then elsewhere in life maybe they're not as accepted yeah um <clears throat> it's probably more of a more of a observation or rather than like necessarily a question but definitely in a sport like we're in we're in a fighting sport and so um we tend to think of ourselves as absolute beasts on the mat and then gentlemen off the mat 
you know, I mean, we're, we're not, most judo people are really nice people, but essentially in our sport, we're trying to put somebody unconscious, throw them on, on their backs as hard as possible or break their arms. Um, that's not deemed normal in society. Um, you know, and I've played rugby a few times as well, so it's not deemed normal in there either. Um, <laughs> although they do like it when I tackle people um, with my judo skills. But I think, yeah, it, it is not normal. And so the, the the language that we're using in judo, like fighter, like we, we, we don't necessarily call our guys, well, we, especially on our program, the world-class program, we've stopped calling them athletes and we've stopped calling them players because they're fighters. And so we, we, we call them fighters and um, we, we do a lot of fight talk which is just not like, it's not normal, like if that, if that is the case. And so when we're coaching the guys, we're very direct and we're very straight. If somebody's, if somebody is throwing somebody against the wall or, and we celebrate that, but then if we look out to the rest of our sport, there's videos out there of a Mongolian legend throwing a horse, like they're our rivals. Like they're, they're the people that we have to be better than. And, and, and so we, we we struggle sometimes with the line because we need our guys to be ultra aggressive. We need them to be animals on the mat. We need them to be, you know, brutal in what they're doing and relentless in in pursuit of getting the, the submission or the throw and stuff like that. So it's where we do draw the line. It's where so we 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 do get a lot of this kind of like people looking. If you came and what, and by the way, open invitation when we do get back up and running, you guys can come over to our center. But when you watch a fight session, you're like, "Gee whiz!" Like this is this is exciting. It's almost like gladiatorial. But we also have the biggest the biggest set of care around the guys, so we're there to put our arm around them. We show we tell them this is just part of the sport. This is what we do. So. Yeah, more of an observation from a sport that definitely is about attacking and defending, and like in the in the sense of like somebody's trying to put you unconscious. How have you found the pressure of that environment as a coach? So I'm just thinking in terms of you talked earlier about your experience at the Olympic, uh, the Paralympics, and and coming away with um, you know the kind of the bronze medal fights and that type of stuff. Did did that? challenge you to be different when you come back to, to take that to a new level and, and be more successful um the pressure like where does the pressure come from is that intrinsic is that external in terms of meeting your targets and your funding how, how does that kind of all pull together it's probably my it's probably me more than anything as a coach because um like if the fighter goes out and doesn't perform and gets gets a fifth place for example um that's that that's one and that fighter can think about that one um i had three of those but actually we had a team of five that went to the games so i felt the i felt it all for all five of them guys so um don't tell don't tell many people but i definitely cried for about 20 minutes afterwards um i went into the changing rooms after the games and and i had a, just a massive sob it's just all emotion coming out of me and then it was like okay what do i need to do well the guys need to be tougher that is for sure. They need to learn how to throw. They need to do this. They need to do. This. So we went away and thought about these sorts of things. I thought I might get sacked because I didn't. I didn't get the medals that we needed to get, keep our funding. Um, I thought that um, our program was so expectant on the Paralympic program bringing back medals. So 
actually, when you speak to UK Sport or, or the other people that will bring in the funding for you or your boss or stuff, it's not about that. It's just about, it's not about medals. Our team is definitely not about medals. It's about best performance and it's about best performance. And do you know what? You could be the best prepared to go on to any, any uh, format and you could still lose. Like, especially in judo, you can get just thrown on your back within seconds. Um, you know, so it's not just it's not just about that moment in time. It's about like a, the best performance on the day, and all we can do is stack the odds in our favour to be able to do so. Which means that we we do have to train pretty hard. We do have to go to Mongolia to go fight these guys. We do have to spend a lot of time in Asia fighting Japanese or you know Koreans and and, and whatnot. We do have to be pretty ruthless as well. Like we have to push our guys. One of the things I was thinking about as you was talking, Tristan, was like, so we have a lot of fighters that we we do have to push to them limits. When they get to the end is when they realise how hard they've been pushed. So when they get to the end of their careers or and then sometimes that's where they're, they're no longer performing, so they're no longer happy with how things are going. That's where a lot of problems may arise. And when I watched Athlete A, it wasn't that that I got from it. I got from it. It's just mismanagement from from a lot of people there. Um, this should never have happened. From a the, the the parents that were in the room when one of the one of the um, young girls was uh, badly treated, and then and then all the way up to the coach, and then to the performance directors, and and above that, you know, that, that's mismanagement. But what we're talking about is, you know, ensuring that the fighters when they're finished understand that they've had the best. They've had this this uh, this program of care wrapped around them to get the best out of them um, from the beginning of their career to the end of their career. Yeah, and there's two there's two things on that. I think the first thing is that um, you're not what what is where we're at a little bit is that you're not funded to do that. So yeah. so actually there should be some sort of acknowledgement to funding that side of them so that they are um, they are prepared for the rest of their life uh, to be a good part of society. And, and that should maybe be reflected in, you know, it doesn't need to be, you know, unicorns and rainbows, but also actually there's, it, it needs to be that they've got something out of it beyond um, a medal. I do, I do think like, you know, in, I don't know, I don't want to give a, a, a date really, like maybe 70s, 80s, 90s, that people finished sport, that was it, finished, right, next, who's next in, especially with successful sports. I imagine it's, pretty similar all the way through now next who's next in but i think um with with the with this kind of documentary and this kind of like the, the education we have around how people are, are, have been treated in sport now um i think that sports have got so much better or the system has got so much better at saying okay you're only at this elite level for this amount of time this is the support you're going to need afterwards. Judo, I know, has, has worked really hard on that in the last few years. I also know previously we've been rubbish. Like, we've been rubbish. We've, we've just we've sent, people, sent fighters that have represented us at Great Britain level, at Olympics, Paralympics, and said, OK, thank you for your time. Off you go next. Um, I think we've got a lot better with that. Still probably not brilliant, but we, we, but at least we're understanding that, um, you know, that... that there is life after sport. Uh, I also think that um, that it's the duty of uh, perform in performance 
um, is the duty of the coaches to get the best out of their athletes. That's why they're there. So it's not just about the medals for the NGBs, but also it's it's about the athletes. There, the, the sort of deal is they're there to do their best and in return they expect the best. And so if you don't set your athletes up to be as good as they can be, then actually there's something there about that's almost almost in a way neglectful behaviour that you're not doing your best for them either. Yeah, I've, I've been pretty open and honest with, with the fighters that I work with about my coaching process. And um, again, I suppose what, what I believe the, the ingredients to success and I've put that on the table right from the beginning so, so as we can at least thrash out a, um, a, a nice little pathway to, to what victory could look like. If, if, now, they, they might just they might bin that off and say, actually, I don't believe in that process. Fine. <laughs> like, you don't have to part of the programme. Um, but actually, this is what I believe is, is, is the, the, the pathway to success. I'm going to round this one off uh, again. Definitely, way more we could we could talk about for a long time. But um, Tristan, so another big question, but I'm going to give you a, an, an opt out. So, how far um, do you think the measures that UK Sport have just kind of put in place in terms of not necessarily assigning funding to medal targets? I haven't looked at all of the details, so correct me if I've got that wrong. To what extent do you think that will start helping, will help, potentially could help? Kind of give me a really brief synopsis of, of where you think that's at. Um, I definitely think that there's a movement of people that realise what's currently happening is not acceptable. Uh, there's definitely, it's better. I would be remiss to say we've not been here before. Um, and so actually what Tokyo being postponed is, is really dreadful, massively for the athletes in particular, but actually it provides an opportunity that things can be really put in place that, that athlete welfare, regardless of how close to a medal or, or whatever they are, is, is the priority. Um, and before any feel-good things from Tokyo occur, where, where the attention, public attention, gets sort of moved across to, this is fantastic, we won. And I think some of it is about that narrative of um, is just peeking behind the curtain a bit about how we won and how that was done. And, and not just by the powers that be, but also by the public a bit about taking some responsibility for how things have occurred. And uh, so I think things are better. They're early days. Um, the, the saying is medals and more. I would probably look at more than medals would be my start point and and uh, and go from there um but i i reserve judgment for a period of time to see um i'm, I'm very much a fan of the statement um watch what they do not what they say so i i will watch with yeah i think um for, for me yeah i i agree with that um but you've got to look at you've also got to look at what your competitors are doing and like the Ukrainians don't live by that rule, the Chinese don't live by that rule, and there are there are rivals essentially. So so yeah. sometimes we we're just going to have to like we we've got. I think we've moved in the right way, but also like we ultimately it's not necessarily about funding for for us. It's not about funding. It, it's a, it's about making sure that our guys leave a legacy or um you know the, the all that kind of stuff. Um, but 
also, like say, Mongolians are wrestling horses. Like that's not ethical. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fascinating that, isn't it? And again, I, I am going to move it on, but even within that, straight away we're into that big grey area where, you know, yeah, uh, it, it's a very complex question. So awesome, uh, Peter. We are coming to you. Uh, what is it you're going to be talking to us about? I just got to say, the first mention of the horse wrestling took me out of the room completely, and I just got back in it, and you mentioned the horse wrestling again, and now I'm on again. So, uh, so horse beyond horse wrestling. Um, the article that I engaged with this week is one I hadn't seen before, and I know I engaged with it because I had it open, and it still is open. It's been open all week, seven or eight pages, um, written by a football coach called Pepin Linders, who is currently uh, a Liverpool assistant, or one of the assistant managers at Liverpool. He wrote this article in 2007 when he was uh, a youth coach at PSV, and it is essentially his manifesto um, I've, I've written notes and there's quotes in here so I'm gonna I'm gonna kick off with this quote which is technique is the basis of everything without technique there is no tactic so the modern soccer coach is both a technical and tactical coach he then breaks his manifesto down into into areas uh, he talks about choices so these are choices made by the coach as to what they are actually working on. So the coach deciding, in essence, what it is that is being coached. He makes this observation. Speed is constantly increasing in international competitions, mainly because spaces are getting smaller. This is why it's especially important to master the ball. So as a technique coach, which his role at the time was to actually work with, as well as the age groups, he worked with individuals technically. So lots of talk about repetition of techniques, uh, but that must be thought of in the context of professional clubs who have lots of training hours. He then goes on about with domination of 1v1s. During every training session, a player might beat the opponent explosively a hundred times. They might change direction a hundred times. And he draws a comparison there with possession games. So in a possession game, the touches become limited. And in Linders's consideration, when this is in 2007, that type of practice becomes designed for tactical improvement rather than technical improvement. So when he says about working technically, he's actually talking about in a game situation. Um, he then talks more about 1v1s, 1v1 Robin cutting in, 1v1 Zidane out of tight spaces, 1v1 Kaka first touch, 1v1 Beckham shooting and passing, 1v1 Ronaldinho tricks. And it's the use of star names to inspire the children and relate their actions to actual situations. From this, they then theme the sessions based on those players picked using 1v1, 2v1, 2v2, and 3v3 for under nine to under 11. I thought that was very interesting because in the UK, I think a lot of coaches would be looking at under nine and under 11 and going, they don't need to be playing 3v3 we want them in larger number games. 
and it's a small-sided games philosophy where he uses goals and finishing as much as possible. Um, and he actually extends the, the small-sided games, these 3v3s, to higher age groups, bigger age groups, at uh, 14, 15, as a way of, of building chemistry between units. So you've got your three central midfielders, they would play in a group. You've got your, you take the three players who play down your right-hand side, they would form a group. Um, and he talks about that under 13. And one of the reasons this resonates with me, and I will say this, although my books are on 3v3, I didn't realize this element of it when I started reading it. I'm like, oh, let's talk about 1v1 technical, oh, 3v3, okay. But it just took me in obviously a little bit more. This is 13 years old. This is stuff that people are currently studying on coaching courses. The English FA is still discussing making game sizes even smaller. And this is from 2007, which shameless I find incredibly interesting. Shameless plugs are allowed. So if you want to plug your book, then, then you... Then you it's we'll, we'll plug it later, but I, I will say it was an it was genuine accident. I'm reading through it. 1v1 stuff, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. They use 3v3. But my book is, my first book is two years old. This is 2007. I, I kind of wish I'd read it before I wrote the books, but there we go. So, yes, um, some interesting things about making spaces smaller, about repetition, about small-sided games and I suppose that links to the spaces and scaling which I think scaling is probably relevant especially working with with children across all sports and actually how modern something that is over a decade old can be or feel. I, I love that there's there's loads to unpick and I'm Stuff like this is a brilliant conversation. Uh, it, it always brings me back to rugby and, and my sadness that I think rugby struggles as a game because it doesn't translate to 1v1 or 3v3. Like you'd need 5v5 really to get anywhere near any sort of reasonable game of rugby. And I, I just think it's, it, that it, it's a, yeah, it's a real shame, but st sticking with the football stuff. So how important do you think that the word you use was scaling, which I really like. So, and I think this is probably applicable for, for all team sports across any small sided game. Do you think coaches may be guilty of not thinking of this enough in terms of actually you will play lots of small sided games, but are we really considering in great detail the relative size of the field or the pitch or the court or something they're playing on um, um, as to the outcome? I think that coaches are guilty of stepping away from it too early. I think they will do it, or I need to probably caveat that a little bit, but coaches with a good understanding of player development will use small-sided games and then they'll step away from it. There are coaches who may not have had that education who won't even do them in the first place. So I see it a coach who's look, a volunteer coach who, who's just touched on level one, they haven't done much, why should they know this stuff? Unreasonable expectation possibly for them to know it. But they'll have 12 players 
who are under seven and they'll play 66 instead of, well, we can play two 3v3s here or we could play three 2v2s here and, and split it up. So there's that side of things. But then I think, as I've just mentioned, it's under nine to under 12 using 3v3. I get asked for questions. Well, how would you use 3v3 with that age group? Well, I'd just use it. How does it relate to them? Well, it does relate to them. Now, you can build into bigger games from it, and that's one of the things that I think is is really useful. You play smaller to get more detail and then go into the bigger picture, but it's this race across sport to get to what looks like the adult version of the game really, really quickly. And some of the things that get scaled or don't get scaled are overly constraining. Like, I, I've been doing some netball coaching in schools and I've got year three and the posts that we've got for shooting in, all we've got are the full size adult ones. Well, they're not scoring. They just can't get it that high. Can we scale it? No, they're fixed. Is it possible to get fixed ones? Yes. Is it easy to get them? No. Are they affordable? Depends who you are. So we've got that scaling issue. So what I do with them is I say, forget about shooting in that way. I'm going to stick two goals down and you're just going to throw it in a goal to score and we'll get the rest of the game out. So yeah, that, that scaling issue I think is, is quite major in, in youth team sports. I, yeah, it makes a great point. I remember reading an article in the Times, and this was years ago, but it, it kind of blew my mind. They were saying this was just, I think, before the FA changed a lot of the, the rules around the small-sided games for the, the specific age groups. And it said the equivalent, so it, I think it must have been maybe like an under 9 or under 10, maybe 11s, were playing in full-size adult goals. And they said the equivalent of that for an average child would be an adult playing in a goal that's like five metres high, and something like 16 meters wide and you just go yeah when you put it in those terms that's a huge issue and what how we hadn't got to that quicker i'm not sure but i think putting it in the scaling issue putting it in adult language but relating it to the problem that the, the kids will face playing these sports i think is a brilliant way to to sell that and, and change it um I want to pick up on one of the points you talked about so you said in terms of the um Coaches, there'll they'll be coaches that don't use small-sided games, no problem. If, if we want to call that drills, then then that's fine, whatever your definition is for that. Do you think maybe in the last, I'm going to say, five years, maybe 10, have we gone too, not too far the other way, but has the other end of the continuum expanded to now just games? So just, the, the, you know, I, I see it a lot on social media, you know, let the game be the teacher. And, and as always with anything skill acquisition based, certainly on Twitter, there's a, there's a huge debate. Um, Tristan's laughing, knows, knows the issue, but I'm just wondering it, how do we combat that as maybe something new? So as much as the challenge has been trying to open up coaches that are very um, drill based um, or very low variability based in their sessions, have we have we now got a challenge in dealing with coaches and developing coaches that are, are the, the game will just do everything I need to do for me? Do, do we all do we need to try and pull everybody a little bit further, or make them more aware of 
what else is on the continuum? Well, I think we, we seem to be living in a opposed versus unopposed war at the moment. Um, ev evangelists on both sides, perhaps. But the thing is, because there is a continuum, uh, a landscape of affordances, to use the, the language, are, people are being made aware of the ends of the landscape, the tips, rather than everything that exists in between. And there's almost, from certain people, uh, an element of it is not all right to do something from this position on the continuum. It is not okay to do this. And of course, the answer is, well, what's your context? What do the players need? How old are the players? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I personally would never want to rule anything out. Because, God forbid, I say, you should never, ever use an unopposed practice. And then I decide, actually, I'm going to put on an unopposed practice. For however long it is, whether it's for three minutes or 15 minutes, you just said you, you should never do that. And you just gone and done it. I think we don't want to limit our options. The more options we have, the better. Whether we choose the right option at the right time, well, that's coaching, as I understand it. I like that. I'm going to jump in and Tristan, really interested in what I guess are individual and like for, for rowing kind of small team sports. What would your use of games look like? Is, is that something that's on your radar as a coach? Like, I, I, I can't say I've ever coached an individual sport or a, you know, a small team sport like that. So is it just all technical based all the time? Would you use scenarios? Like how, how do you go about using this type of stuff? Yeah. So um, I'm, I'm pretty fortunate that um, when I retired as a fighter, um, I, I did quite a lot of coaching badges. Um, I was. I wanted to be a PE teacher, like when I grew up, and uh, I was. I was. So I, did, I thought to myself, what are the type of schools I need to. I want to be in. So I started to play rugby, at thirty years old or something like that, um, and I did my uh, RFU level one. I also did my um, FA level two. Um, but I've, I coached a football team for many many years. Like my son, uh, um, I coached his football team. Like many dads do. I've, uh, got a healthy or unhealthy passion obsession with Liverpool Football Club myself. So when I heard Pep Linders, I could, you can tell the way Liverpool play today that that is that is that is definitely a DNA that runs through the guys that they do these short games and uh, stuff like that. But I think um, going into judo, right? So judo, you can very easily. It's a high skill sport. It it probably doesn't look like it sometimes because it's just too people trying in pajamas throwing each other on the floor almost thing but there's a lot of skill to that like you know if you're trying to throw another person that doesn't want to be thrown and um, that's quite difficult and they're trying to attack you at the same time so we tend to i mean it essentially is constraints-based coaching when i think of it that way um that, that we we do give our guys quite a lot of constraints and um, we'll say that you can only do this technique or you can only do that technique we tend to shorten the time um, to, to increase intensity. Uh, we shorten the spaces down because I think an Olympic mat area is 10, 10 metres by 10 metres. Um, what we tend to do is bring it right down to 
three meters by three meters to to bring the same sort of um, what, what we're talking that was it the Ronda Rondo thing is in a short space like we tend to do the same thing for pressure um, same with time we bring the time down what I would say though is that our judo looks the same for seniors just about as it does for juniors like there's not many differences juniors can't do arm locks and strangles um, juniors can't go around the head when they're throwing people I don't think there's many other differences um, that's a bit of my naivety that's how long I've been in away from club judo um i suppose but i, I yeah but there's not much difference so like the, the 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 goal thing yeah i get that when i used to coach my lads um at first, i can remember i can remember that we only had size five five footballs and they were under sixes and i'm like it comes up to the knees we can't use size five we need to get them a load of size ones and twos because they're too big for the boys you know so um but yeah, in judo, we definitely do constraints-based stuff like that. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think it's judo is one of those sports where it's just natural that we do that because otherwise you're just fighting like like this, and or it's just technical where you're just working on the foot placement or the hand placement or the finger placement or the weight distribution, all that kind of stuff. Um, so that's probably where the technical and then the tactical bit is how you had it all together. But yeah, God, I can talk, can I? Sorry. It's fine. I think um, I think rowing uh, certainly has. So if you look at racing, um, certain tactics. But but we, unlike football, rugby, and judo, we have no control over our opposition. We we can't touch them, and we can't. So actually, all we can do is you quite often see one on one races. So Henley is one on one, and so is the boat race. Um, and so if one crew gets out and is leading psychologically it's easier to see your opposition than not um, and that means that tactically you might have a fast start but pretty much if you're not in the race you're never going to be in it so lots of people will have a fast start so there's not the same tactics as uh, as I would see in other in the other three sports that we've spoken about um, I do think it's a technical thing the one thing slightly different is that what we're looking for is uniformity and across our crew so different countries will row in a different way and and you know there'll be a style around what they do and we might look at it and say that's not right but as long as they're all doing the same thing they will go faster than a crew that is looks great but they're not all doing the same thing at the same time uh and so a lot of our um a lot of our training is technical and then we try and, you know, stress our athletes slightly by throwing things in about role play and side by side stuff. And if you're down, what do you do? Uh, pressure. That's an interesting one with rowers, because if you're down, what do you just go for it? Or do you, you know, well, it's not going to happen. We'll come back another day. Um, so I think there's opportunity there, but not I, I watch games like rugby and football. Uh, as a fan and I am amazed by the opportunities there are in coaching in terms of tactics and that I, I look at that and think that's really exciting and I probably without thinking much of it just while we're talking would would say the same about judo the opportunities that are there about how you technically and tactically beat your opposite number we we just don't really have that because we can't impose what we're doing beyond oh they've gone okay bye um, 
can I ask you guys about technique? Because I think in, linked with the the civil war of affordances, and there's another debate about perfect or ideal technique. Now, in football, and I guess rugby is going to be more similar to this. There will be people who say no, that a hundred percent is an optimum technique or method for delivering a certain action and then there's other people who will go well if that person can deliver it with consistency and it's not what would be considered the the copybook version does it matter i'm probably more towards that end of things but with rowing and judo how much does it, it matter how close an action is to an optimum version of a technique? I can go if you want. Um, so I think there's, 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 there's a couple of things really that um, we have so many techniques. There are so many ways to get a person flat on the back. There are so many ways to get um, an arm lock or a strangle or a pin or there's so many ways to, to do it that actually one person's dreadful technique is another person's absolute perfect technique is it's there's 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 like weight distribution there's breaking balance there's the grip there's the going through the air um ultimately if the person lands flat on the back you win the fight so i think like there's there's a there's there's a lot of coaches and and I was I was um, a quite a, fly, a flair fighter, should we say? I love the big throw. I played rugby. Um, I played football, scoring a goal, um, scoring a try, tackling somebody. Like throwing somebody flat on their back who doesn't want to be thrown is one of the best feelings I've ever had. Like you know, he's definitely up there with Liverpool's uh, Premiership last year. Like it, actually throwing a, a Russian or a Japanese on flat on their back is massive. So the more I think about it, I, I used to hunt for that perfect throw. I wish I'd just got people over sometimes, like, you know, <laughs> and just and just did that part of it. So, yeah, sometimes somebody somebody will do a technique or let's say my throw, which is an uchimata. Um, it's like a, basically a leg throw. Um and somebody will do it differently and somebody else will do it differently to that. And somebody else will do it differently to that, you know? So, yeah, I think, I think we do strive for perfect technique as such, but it doesn't really matter the higher up you go. It's getting the job done. <laughs> yeah. I'd say um, there's a, there's a sort of link at, at Olympic level with rowing. Uh, you, you want a leg drive. So some people, when they watch rowing, think the blades move. You put the blades in a point and the boat moves past the blades and then you take the blades out. And in rowing, you're just trying to get from A to B as quick as possible. So everything you do is aimed at keeping the boat going in that direction, even when you're going the opposite direction on, on what we call the recovery, when the blades are not in. Um, but we have Olympic champions who... So if you, you have to push your legs, so you would keep your arms straight and they'll bend their arms. But I would say, and I don't know if Ian finds this in... Um, in judo is that if you're physiologically incredible your power output actually your technique that you're used to doing you can still create the power and the wattage that will make you successful you wouldn't look at it and say that's the right way to do things 
but because their power is off the charts and they're very successful, it works for them. And they, okay, it works. I'm not going to go three steps down to learn the optimum way if it means that I might never get back up to where I am. So, yeah, we've got many examples of, of you wouldn't row like that and different nations row in different ways, but specifically individuals, I think it probably is physiology. They have a base technique of how to do something which is which is of an elite level anyway, but they also then have a physiology that will override any shortfalls they've got in in what we would call optimum technique. That's a great point. I mean, in, in judo, so we talk about the, our guys that are technically very very good, like their technique, their their throwing ability is unbelievable, but physically they can't do it because on the other end of their arms they've got a Russian that just not allowing them to get past the arms or you know. So we, we, we talk a lot about the ability to physically impose yourself on your opponent. I think that's where we've got to the point of um, having the ability to do something, but actually being able to do it. So get past the arms or, and that's just part of our sport, I suppose, isn't it? You know, you can have the most technically gifted football team, but if, if they can't put the ball in the back of the net, it doesn't really matter. I could listen to this all day, guys. Yeah, and and in terms of, I'm back in the room after Tristan's point around the blades. I was genuinely in my head going, "Hold on, how does that work? How do the blades not move?" So yeah, leave that one with me. I'll, I'll work that out at some stage. But um, this this was the absolute delight of of having. Phil, it is okay to look out the window, by the way, when you're in that room. <laughs> it is fine to do that. I, I think I think Nigel speaks about daydreaming. That it's okay to daydream as well. Okay. Just seeing it. Just see no, that's good. That's good. I do that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's awesome. Um, no, this is the absolute delight of, of every day's a school day when you get into sports that you have no experience of and, and no understanding of. So um, I will uh, we'll leave the discussion there. As I say, definitely could go on for a lot longer, but um, just we'll do a quick round up. So what are you guys recommending for anyone if they want to uh, go and take a listen? So uh, Tristan, we'll come to you first. Uh, so uh, I'm recommending that you watch uh, Athlete A on Netflix and then I've uh, there's some other things that will be in Phil's blurb about a podcast uh, and a book that are around um, the, the abuse of, of Larry Nassau and gymnastics as a wider thing. Fantastic. I'll, um, I'll got the links for those, so I'll tweet those as well for anyone that doesn't get to, uh, to look at the blurb. So yeah, spot on. Uh, Peter, what are you uh, recommending for people? Uh, aside from the article, the Pepin Linders article, I'm recommending a, a non-sport thing book that I think particularly at this time is really useful. I read it years ago. Um, funny enough, it was given to me by a chiropractor. Um, I wouldn't recommend, I'm not in, neither endorsing nor uh, saying don't go to a chiropractor. It just was. Uh, and this book is called Who Moved My Cheese by Dr. Spencer Johnson. And it's a very, very simple book about two mice that live in a maze and they go to the same point every single day to get fed, to get their cheese. And then one day the cheese is not there and the two mice act in very, very different ways. So just something that I think could, could help some people during these, these times. Nice. Love that. Okay. Intriguing. Intriguing. Uh, Ian, what are you going with? Gee whiz. Um, right. So I was going to go with Seven's Heaven by Ben Ryan. And then I thought about it 
Um, excellent book, by the way, and audio book. I listened to it. Turn the Ship Around by David Marquette, which is about leader, leader. But I'm going to go with A Boy in the Water by Tom Gregory. And essentially, it's about the relationship between um, a coach and a young lad that, that swam the channel. Um, like, and everybody said that he shouldn't do it. So I'll probably go with that. I mean, other things like, um, I don't know, uh, the um, Last Dance documentary on Netflix, for example. Brilliant series. Love yeah. that. Interesting fact about swimming the channel. Uh, did you know more people have climbed Everest than have swum the channel? That blew my mind a little bit when I found that out. Yeah, I was like, oh, that's that's a pretty lofty goal. You kind of go swimming the channel, like, it, it just doesn't sound... Like, it's obviously ridiculously hard, but when you put it in that context, I was like, holy shit, yeah, that's... that's so this, this kid was about 12 as well. Bloody hell. You know, so it is, it, the, the story is unbelievable. I, I, I listened to it on audiobook, and it was better than reading it, I think. Um, it just comes across a little bit better, so... Fantastic. Uh, gents, thank you very much. As I said, I've absolutely loved this. It's been uh, a great experience. I hope you enjoyed it as well. I will uh, quickly round up the roundup. So to anyone listening, we hope you found it useful. Thank you to my guests again for their fantastic insight. Uh, links to all the content discussed are available in the blurb on Rugby Coach Weekly. Please subscribe, like and share. Uh, again, I'd like to thank you for listening. Wish you all the best and go well.